Hello and welcome to the new and improved, yet still the same old classic, Mastering Dungeons, here for 2023. I'm making fireworks. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, Teos Abadia, who is miming fireworks. That's that's for good role playing right there. <laughs> we should probably change the name of the, the podcast to Miming Fireworks. Uh, yeah, that's today's episode is really looking into the history of fireworks. Yes, except that it's not because we are still here to talk about all the goodness in Dungeons and Dragons and role playing games and designing and the business side of things and all of that that you've come to hopefully come to love about our show. So we are here again for another year of goodness and we are going to dive right in because we have a lot to talk about, starting with our tweet bag, toot bag, Patreon, missive, YouTube comment, etc. And we start with Wayne Peacock, who on the YouTubes asked the following question. What are your top five things that Sixie should or could do to make the GM's job easier and more fun? Wow. All right, Teos. I'm just seeing this question for the first time, yeah. so I need some time to cogitate. So tell me. Well, I, I didn't prep, but I'll, so maybe we can just we can even alternate or, or total up five. But one that I'll say is that I think that I would like the rules as we read over the player's handbook, as we look at the one D and D stuff. I would like the rules to speak to the DM a bit more and converse with them a bit more, right? Like teach the DM. Don't just like I think there's the idea that if the rules are so elegant, you don't need to do anything else. And I don't actually think that's true. I think you do actually have to say to the to the DM, hey, here's what you can do. You have these options. Go about it the following way. Like actually give direct instruction, not just rules. Mm -hmm. I'm going to piggyback on that to say not only should the rules do that, uh, the rules should also know what the rules are doing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the strengths of 5e and of D&D in general is that it can be used in a variety of different ways by a variety of different DMs to create fun experiences for a variety of different players. Mm -hmm. So when we get to our main section, we're going to talk about combat. And so co the combat rules create a game that is a tactical, more of a tactical war game. And not everyone wants to play that type of game. So DMs are often forced to or decide to make tweaks to those rules or use a less strict version of those rules to create a more narrative structure. Yeah. And so what I want the rules to do is to say to the DM, if you are running a more narrative game, here are some ways that you can take these rules we've given you and change them a bit so you are not spending five minutes on each player's turn. You can instead be getting to the part of the game that you like, which is narrating. Mm. Uh, that's what I want the rules to do. I want the rules to admit, finally, after all these years, what D&D &D actually is and embrace it rather than sort of hand wave it and force DMs to figure it out on their own. So I think that's what you were saying, Teos, yeah. only uh, more, I want to uh, get more specific. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that angle of, of what the, the rules are saying is really critical and, and, and that they explain that they aren't the entirety of everything. That, that, that is really true. 
Um, all right, another one I would do is to say that the the examples of play, I think there could be a more varied set of examples of play that help you figure out your approach to the game and help you ease into it. So I don't feel like there are enough on-ramps in what's written. And maybe this is really something that should go in the adventures, you know, like like the starter set adventure type thing, but but that it would really give you that 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 help you develop your approach and your take versus assuming that all games are sort of the same help you find that that way that you want to operate and and do that because i think a lot of times dms find it super intimidating when they're starting to sort of become a dm versus find their style and and that that difference i think is pretty key I would like 6E to simplify the game mm. to help make the GM's job easier. Help simplify the game by not necessarily eliminating player options, but by making the player options more easy, more um, easier for the DM to be able to understand so you sort of know what the players are doing rather than relying solely on the player's knowledge to know what the player is doing. Mm. And this, a new edition or a new version of an edition is the perfect opportunity to do that, to make a basic version of the game where the, what the players can do is simplified. So you as the game master can, can sort of, understand what's going on and help new players along because it is a simpler version of the game. So I have a, I disagree a little bit. Um, and so maybe this becomes almost what my, my suggestion would be is, is know how to deal with the, with what the players bring to the table without knowing what it is that they're bringing to the table. And what I mean by that is in fourth edition, there was a real big difference for DMS where there were now so many powers for all the different classes and so many classes and so many species and all of that, that really almost no DM could know everything that showed up. And so this was a big change. Like it was a big mental change for DMs to suddenly go like, well, I I don't know what you do. You're the only person who could possibly know all the things you do. And now my role shifts to be trusting you and playing off of whatever it is that you do. And I think that that's a good part of the game to have because there will inevitably be at some point in an addition so many options. And if 5e really is backwards compatible, we already have almost an unknowable number of options already. And certainly if you include third party. So you can't know what your players bring to the table. It won't make sense. It won't be simple. And given that, it's how do you work off of it rather than try to, you know, you're not trying to understand it. You're trying to trust them and play off of it so it fits into your campaign, whatever your campaign style is. And that that's the hard part, right? Like, how do you keep it from unbalancing yeah. or breaking or pushing a strange I, direction? I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you. I'm talking about things like the artificer, mm-hmm. which seems to add new rules as you go, mm. right? So if you're going to have this this type of class that sort of breaks the rules of all the other classes it needs to work in a way that is somewhat compatible with those other classes. So when you, as the artificer, when you create your little cat cannon that can shoot things or shoot temporary hit points, right. That that's the sort of thing where if, if it's, 
if it's going to be used, it needs to be used in a way that is yeah. not completely divergent from the where the rules are. So it should Agreed. work like an animal companion as opposed to a whole new thing. So you can understand how the animal companion works uh, and then you can w- work from there. And a familiar should work like an animal companion, which should work like the artificer's uh, canon, yeah. which should work like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And then if you start with those base rules where everything makes sense, when you add new rules, if you're going to create a new thing, great, create a new thing, but then have a set of rules that work with that new thing. So you're just learning the basics once yeah. and then everything else sort of flows into that thing. And I understand that people, no, right. there are certain subsets of players that want complication mm-hmm. and they want all the things and that's fine. You know, I'm one of those people sometimes too, but if we want to actually help make the GM's job easier, then that's what we, that's what we need. No, that's true. The artificer is certainly one where if you if you hear it for the first time as either a player or a DM, you'll make assumptions that will be wrong because the artificer's canon has this weird way of being partially like a creature, partially not. And it can lead to things like a DM that never attacks it because they never or a player that never you know makes a saving throw for it or whatever, because it, it just it's in this weird space. And that's true. It'd be good if it a were like other things. And if not, B at least really truly tells everybody up front, here's how it really is governed so that it could be easy to use at the table, but it's not. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Hmm. Uh, any other things that you would want the, the addition to do to make the GM's job easier? So, I mean, a question that I heard the other day is, are we going to cover the Dungeon Master's Guide the way we've done Player's Handbook, which is an interesting question. So maybe listeners can tell us what they think. Um, but there is a lot that I would do around reorganizing the DMG so that it is not just a great inspirational tool, which it is, but also a a better guidebook, a better teaching vehicle and a better toolkit, which other editions have done better than the 5e DMG. And I think having that book be more of a go-to resource would be helpful. And, and I think that's a thing that all Dungeon Master's Guides have struggled with recently, which is why does a DM open it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why do they go right. back to it the way that a player might go back to the player's handbook? And that's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer once you really think about it. Yeah. I think one of the things not necessarily the rules could do, but wizards could do is either on their own or in a partnership with someone, have more videos um, of, mm-hmm. hey, you're a DM. These are the things that you're going to potentially have to do. And you could break it down into building a world. Uh, everything that the Dungeon Master's Guide talks about, except in a form that is a little more digestible and yeah. hands, not hands on, eyes on. Uh, so you, you can understand and you can see it in action as it's being described. Um, you know, this is what you do before the game. This is what you do when the game is is happening, and this is how it all connects. Well, this maybe segues nicely to this topic of Dungeon 23. True story. Uh, Dungeon 23 has been a hot topic recently, so we wanted to talk about it really quickly. Uh, Where did it start? Well, Dungeon 23 comes from a tweet from Sean McCoy, who worked for, I think it's called Tuesday Night Games, which made the game Mothership. 
And this is the idea that each day in 2023, you create one dungeon room and it can be like just a sketch and then some ideas. And then you can turn like after a week, you'll have seven rooms. And some people have said, well, that could be a dungeon level. Some people say make the dungeon level once per month. And then so you'd have a 30 or 31 or 28 room uh, level for your dungeon. And at the end of 2023, you will have a 12 level complete mega dungeon. And this is cool. Uh, you know, yeah. This is like NaNoWriMo, but for, for D&D. Yeah. And uh, so what do you think about that? Uh, I think it's awesome. It also sounds, and I've heard this a bit, intimidating uh, and, and almost unrealistic I think for most people, this almost needs its own guide to to do and examples. And I, and I think, you know, unfortunately, we're going to see if you look at social media is you to see the best uh, and most unattainable levels are going to be the ones that are most shared. Right. The incredible description of a room. And there are already some people who are drawing some incredible, incredible drawings. I lack that kind of talent. Um, and then you have people who are, you know, just they're taking like a Dyson's logo. Um, uh, map and then they're taking you know or something else a generator and so then the map is done you know via some other mechanism either someone else made it or it's a generator and then they're playing off of that there are a lot of ways to do it and and i'm not doing it because i lack the time uh and and i and i'm already doing in in my life i'm always i'm, I'm creating already pretty much on a daily basis so i don't need the stimulus the way someone else would benefit from it but i do really believe in that idea that if you create often it is better for your brain and it will keep you sharp and focused and it'll keep you, uh, it'll, it'll help you be a more capable creator, a more creative creator. If you think through this, so I think it's an awesome exercise. I'm a little worried about how much of a work it can come off as being. And, and, and I'd hate to see people crash mm -hmm. over it, right. Or feel frustrated mm -hmm. by it. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think like you say, it's, it's a good idea just to get, get started. Just to if you if you don't do a lot of game design or you know if you're not a DM that makes a dungeon every week for your players, um, this is a good way to at least get your feet wet. Mm -hmm. As you said, that's that can be a lot of work depending on if you map it, if you stat it out, if you write the full descriptions and figure out what monsters go in. You know that's that's a lot of work. I would almost if especially my suggestion if you're new to the game or new to DMing or new to design is to rather than do one room a day, do one room a week. Yeah. And each day take a different part of that designing that and do that. So mm -hmm. day one, f f draw it on your map. Day two, figure out thematically what you want in this room. Day three, write a description of the room. Day four, populate the room with whatever things that you want in it, monsters or traps. Or, you know, and that way you are taking the work that and, and it can, you know, if you're doing this, it, it can take you a good couple of hours to or more to make a complete room with everything that you need in it. So this sort of divides up that work and it gives you time to miss a day and you can I'll, I'll sketch out the room and figure out what's going to go in it instead, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I think like anything else, anything that gets people creating and thinking is good. Um, the schedule could be a little much for sure. Yeah, And the, the other way you can tackle it is to just 
have it be the most basic thing, right? Give yourself only 10 minutes and see what you get in 10 minutes, right? Just 10 minutes of like things you're talking about, right? What's the premise of the room? What's the goal? What are the, what are the creatures or, or engagement mechan- mechanics in there? What do you like? And just done. Like it doesn't have to be in some format. It doesn't have to be a thing you're going to publish or share. Just write on some scrap paper. It doesn't matter. Right? just come up with the ideas. And that that's a great exercise. Almost the equivalent of, you know, you wake up. What did you dream? Right. Write that down. Like that can be so interesting a right. thing to do for the same kind of ideas. It's inspirational. It's it's introspective. It's creative. Right. Like just, mm-hmm. just don't overdo it. Um, yeah. Because if you make it work, right. you definitely it, it's like working out, right? Like if if working out is a chore, you're not going to do it all the time. And so you have to make it fun and rewarding so that you stick to that plan, right? Right. I mean, do it like you would a journal almost like Teos is saying, you know, wake up and what's the first word you think of? Write that word down. And then when you go back to do your dungeon later in the day, make the theme of that dungeon, whatever words you wrote. If it's a color red, then everything in the dungeon is red. Well, why is it red? Yeah. So you're you're now already designing with that with just one word prompting you and, and that mm-hmm. can be useful. Yeah. The other thing is, is, is so it's if always, you do dungeon yeah. 23. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just that it's also fun to pull in inspiration, right? Like uh, creating your own ideas is great too, but also to, you know, it's okay to spend a day looking through other, other dungeons and, and just draw, spend a day on inspiration is okay too. Right. And then you can just write empty room. I was yep. inspired by other things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if you do end up doing dungeon 23 in any way, shape or form, you know, let us know what, what you've been up to and how it's working out for you. We'd love mm-hmm. to love to hear about it. Now we get to our news and commentary section, and boy, we were off for a week, and did things happen? Apparently, yes. Uh, The first thing is what I will call the OGL elephant in the room. So probably minutes after we finished recording our last show, Wizards of the Coast put out a statement via D&D Beyond talking about their thoughts on what would be in a new open gaming license. Uh. If you have listened to Teos and I for the last six months, you have heard our thoughts on the open gaming license, what it has meant, what it will mean going forward. And I I think it's safe to say you can go back and listen to those and everything we've said still holds true. Nothing that's been released so far has contradicted anything that we've imagined or thought or considered. So, but what we do want to talk about is what, wizards actually said via this statement uh, i'm going to let teos give you a summary yeah. of what the uh what the thing said so the first thing they did and we've heard this now a couple of times recently is is it reasserts that 61 dnd will be backwards compatible with 5e so that's good in that they're clearly not abandoning that as a goal um, and they did this in the context of the OGL to say, like, well, all your old content that you're doing, you know, it's not going to be trashed. But I would say there is the story of third edition and 3.5. We've talked about that on the show before. And so that that's not a I wouldn't say that fully calms me, but at least it's still a goal of theirs to have some some element of backwards compatibility. Right. That is that is the goal. And they're saying it now several times. Um, second thing they did is they said there's going to be a new version of the SRD 
460. And that's a big deal because a system reference document it contains the parts you can use. And it has, you know, it took a while for the SRD to come out for 5e. And then it was never updated again, even though all of this new content kept coming out. And so a big question is, is there going to be, you know, say an SRD that uses language like a D&D test or a D20 test? Sorry. Uh, is there going to be an artificer in an SRD? Is there going to be any number of things that don't currently exist in the SRD, whether it's new material or material for fifth edition that hasn't been in the SRD in the past? And, you know, we don't know what this SRD will have, but at least we know a new one will come out. So that's great news. A lot of people didn't think that would happen. Um, and then we are told there will be a new version of the OGL, version 1.1, in early 2023. So sometime soon, we might we may see this. And that's where it gets interesting, because the new version is said to clarify that the OGL only covers tabletop games with print media or static files like PDFs. It's not meant to cover things like video games or movies or, you know, they use the idea of NFTs. Um, and given that Wizards of the Coast is trying to expand their brand and be all these other types of things, you could see my, that why they might want to, to include that kind of a language. Um, and the, we are now also hearing as part of the wording that's in there that you have to accept the license. So that means you're sort of signing it. And, and this is something that fourth edition had. Um, so you're not just using the license, putting in your product, you, you are accepting it and you are telling Wizards of the Coast what you're selling. If you make over $50,000 in OGL reven related revenue in a year, you have to report that to Wizards of the Coast. And if you make over 750 grand, which they say only 20 creators would qualify currently, uh, you must pay a royalty to Wizards of the Coast starting next year. Uh, lastly, you must put a creator product badge on your work. So some sort of signifier that shows that it's third party and not official. So some people were calm by this, Sean, but others became as nervous or more nervous than they already were. And they already had been pretty nervous, which is why Wizards felt they had to make this statement. And I think the reason for the nervousness is really around the open gaming license in that legal experts seem to believe that all open gaming licenses are available. And even what Wizards has said in the past indicates that all open the open gaming license never goes away. So a new version would be, I guess, instead of that previous one, and you're now signing this, but why would you do that? Why would you take that on, right? So when they say, like, you can't make a movie, for example, well, that's what this new license, couldn't someone use the old license to make a movie? It, it, it's unclear sort of why Wizards feels the OGL is being updated and, and, and why we do this. Like, let's say you make over $750,000 a year. Why would you want the new license? And so maybe the new license is a requirement for the new SRD, right? Maybe that's sort of the carrot that goes with the stick. Um, or maybe there is access to the VTT or there's access to some other marketplace or who knows. So one of the big questions is, is why, what exactly will the language of the OGL be? Will it look like the fourth edition GSL? We've talked about this before. We had a number of aspects that made it unpalatable for most creators. Uh, or will it be great? And there's just so much that's good about uh, the new SRD and the new open gaming license that everybody wants it. And it's completely great to want to pay a royalty if you make more than 750000 It's totally worth it to report your income if it's over 50000 We don't know that, right? We're going to have to see that, that those documents to really know 
what what the benefits and detriments are right right i i think this statement from wizards said a lot while saying very little <laughs> uh it what it did say if we can take it at its face value is hey if you're a creator who just wants to create open gaming licensed content and you're not making you know a ton of money off of it nothing is going to change for you they they came right out and said that in this statement they, and i take that at face value well i don't <laughs> okay because um, of the gsl you know, I, right I, I take that right and so i take that at face value for this statement mm-hmm. i i also recognize the fact that people online are saying oh the next open gaming license is so bad because blank 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 we have not seen the next right. open gaming license wizards of the coast said some things that would likely be in the next open gaming license but we have not seen it right we, we do not know. know any of the any of the details of it it could be the greatest thing it could be the worst thing but we don't know and we won't know until it is put out there and even after it's put out there it may be gone over by lawyers it may be gone over by business people and it may change yeah uh, before yeah, sure. a final version is made um i i have deep down in my heart a strong hope that the people making the decisions at wizards of the coast on this recognize the importance of community created content to the game because it is not the main part but it is a huge part of the success of fifth edition yeah this this third party uh creative community that has added so much to the game the one of the big you know corporate idioms is win 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 right we want solutions where everyone wins on all sides of things yeah and if they understand the importance of third-party content and they want everyone to win with this they can make that happen yeah, yeah. uh now is everyone going to be happy of course not you're going to have third-party creators out there who want to like paizo did with third edition use a hatred of the corporation to be a marketing tool for them so no matter what wizards of the coast does even if it's the greatest thing they've that's ever been done legally in the game design industry people will say oh look they're trying to steal from everyone please come play our you know third party <laughs> game yeah we can just ignore it we can just ignore that that's just mar- that's just marketing uh so we want to we want to i hope that we will see a a situation where everyone can win yeah. from from this yeah and and what's written here could be that right and and i think that the 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 dangers of it are all things that don't necessarily well that don't exist in any of what's been written they're just potential and and the the fact that they want to update the gaming license makes people nervous but it may be that there is no reason to be nervous right that the big dangers are things like when you write for the dm's guild you no longer own that material and you you get royalties from it but you don't own it and you can't transfer it somewhere you if if the dm's guild goes down you don't the license doesn't revert to you you don't you don't gain it back you can't sell it in some other way 
And so those are the kind of things, the, the kind of language that, that it'll be very interesting to see what comes out, whether there is something like that, right? So fourth edition's GSL had provisions in it that allowed wizards to change the language at any time in the future, right? And we, we see that with all kinds of, you know, iTunes stores and things like that. And you can understand why the company may want that. But what it means for creators, you don't know whether tomorrow you can sell what you can sell today or whether the terms will change. And those kinds of agreements are very difficult, certainly for your largest players, but even for small players, they are significant. But we don't know what that will be, so we're going to have to <laughs> wait and see. But we did put some some great links in the show notes. Uh, the Alexandrian had had a very good retrospective on uh, the open game and license and where it came from. Uh, there's also Alex Cameron, Mark Greenberg discussing on a podcast uh, about the the legal legality of it uh, and great questions like, you know, can you what can you publish without an OGL? Um, there's just there are fascinating discussions out there to be had. And, and, and you know, what is the benefit of an OGL? What, when do you need it? Why do you need it? What can you do with it? Are, are all fairly open questions in a lot of ways. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we go from the legal to the mechanical. The 1D&D playtest survey for the cleric and for species is out. Um, So you can go to D&D Beyond and give them your opinions. And you can also go back for our coverage of the cleric in previous episodes. I'm super curious whether Uh, the the number... I was going to say, I'm very curious whether the number of people filling out this survey will drop, especially with the holidays, but also with whether... And with how long these surveys can be, even though it's l- less material this time, I'm curious with the number filling out will will really take a, a dive yep. down. Yep, we will see if they let us know uh, in in their on their marketing sorts of things where they talk <laughs> about it. Um, if they do tell us, uh, the Adventures League blog has been updated. There are new documents uh, at the Yawning Portal where Chris Tulak pr- is providing news on updated player and DM documents. Uh, They are updated to pull in the information together into one place and account for the new campaigns that we have recently discussed. And while we are discussing the Adventures League, I'm going to jump right in and say, hey, you can sign up for Winter Fantasy 2023. Uh, Registration and sign up should be now live. Winter Fantasy is taking place in Fort Wayne, Indiana, February 1st through the 5th. Uh, Winter Fantasy is using tabletop events this year for badge and ticket purchases. And I will be there mostly playing, but I will be running two agents of the empire games Wednesday and Thursday nights. And that's the new there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. And I've played one of those agents of the empire. That's the new fables, ghost fire subscription ongoing adventure. That's cool. I'll be signing up for that soon. Cool. Starting January 1st, which is yesterday as we record, the new Fables adventure has come out called Agents of the Empire, a six-episode ongoing adventure where you get one episode per month, and each episode has four chapters that should give you four nights of of four hours of play. So you have a full campaign. I have... uh, read it i have run the first little segment which i'm going to be running again at winter fantasy and so you can go to ghostfiregaming.com to sign up for that it's really fun stuff sweet what are you running at winter fantasy uh 
that's a great question. I think I did get my information. I am running Dragonlance. That's what I'm, I just looked at it right now. That, that's how far behind I am. I, I know okay. that I submitted various interseries and I just confirmed. I'm running a bunch of Dragonlance. I'm excited to do that. That's going to be fun. Cool. So, you know, if you are in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or that area, the first weekend of February, stop by and say hi to Teos and myself. And, you know, we'd love yeah. to talk with you. Back to more news, we can talk about Yen World in a couple of different ways. First is their Vote for Your Favorite podcast contest. There are two categories that you could vote for, talk podcasts and actual play podcasts. Someone was kind enough to nominate this podcast, Mastering Dungeons. So whoever did that, thank you thank so you. much. We appreciate your support. And you can go to nworld.org. And log in and vote for your favorite podcasts on either of those. Yeah, uh, link topics. in our show notes. EN World. Yeah, EN World is also looking for columnists. Specifically, they are looking for someone to report on Adventures League. So if you're an Adventures League player, game master, administrator, and you are looking to break into publishing, uh, they pay six cents a word, which isn't the greatest, but these sorts of columns are a great way to get the experience of publishing game material. Mm -hmm. uh, it often, you know, sharpens your sword, if you will, in, in writing, gets you in the publishing frame of mind. And I know that a lot of game designers have started in a way. I think James Hake, for example, mm -hmm. was an editor there um, at, at EN World. And James Intracasso yeah. may also have been. So... You know, there are many people that started their game design or game industry work in something like this. So there's a link in the show notes, so you can go to nworld.org and read all about what they're looking for in a columnist. Scott Fitzgerald Gray has released his Core 20 RPG preview. I'm going to let Teos take this one. Yeah, this is really cool. Uh, if you are a fan of our show, you have heard us talk to talk about and with Scott Gray many times. He's a renowned editor. He is an incredible designer. He's worked on all kinds of products. Most of the D and D things on your shelf that are from you know certainly third edition on. If you pick it up, it probably has his name in it somewhere. Um, we're always in, in awe of his work, uh, and he is launching a new RPG called Core 20, and he's begun to share previews. Uh, he shared it, I believe, on both Mastodon and Twitter, um, and we've included a link to the first document in our show notes. It talks through building your character, and the emphasis that Scott places becomes really clear, the emphasis he places on unique characters with a strong sense of story. This is all about character generation. So really looking forward to this. Uh, very happy for Scott that he's that he's doing this. It's really cool. Yeah, I am. I am looking very forward to seeing what Scott comes up with. Uh, I've talked about it in other places, but I'm going to keep a sharp eye on what Mr. Gray has been up to. Mm -hmm. Teos and I have been up to something. We were on the GM's Magazine show with. Paco Garcia Reed Jean and Chris Sims talking about how to make great D&D encounters. Uh, it was a great discussion. Love talking with both Paco and Chris about what makes great encounters, how to create them, how they fit into adventures. Um, you know, Chris is a 
developer, editor, writer of D&D stuff along the lines of, of Scott, right? Mm-hmm. A, a lot of Chris, Chris's name is in a lot of third edition, fourth edition stuff, and even some fifth edition stuff. And so he, his wealth of knowledge that he shares is, is amazing. And it was great to, you know, trade ideas and stories and concepts with them. Yeah, really fun. Great conversation, full of tips. So do give it a a, a watch or a listen because I, I thought we we really put together some really interesting topics and and great ideas. A lot of inspiration there for how to make interesting encounters. So, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's part of a series called Making Great. So it's like making great blank, and they have mm-hmm. they've had Ed Greenwood on. They've had you know a, a bunch of other industry folks on to to talk about different things so uh, check that out and also check out something from one teos abadia his success in role-playing games series now has social media and ndas uh, as a uh, as a topic so what have you been uh, talking about with that uh, I've been busy, you know, with all this discussion around non-disclosure agreements, I thought it'd be good to to walk through what a typical NDA looks like, what's in one, and why companies want you to sign one, and why that makes great sense. And if you work with a lot of people on projects, why you may want to have people sign one, uh, why you may want to sign one as a creator yourself, and, and what does it mean? Should you worry about it? Generally, no. So talk through all of that. And then the social media episode just launched this week. And it looks at ways to try to make social media as healthy as possible and think through what your goals are as a creator, right? Focus specifically on as an RPG creator, what can you do with social media? What modes can you choose to operate in so that it's an effective channel, but also a healthy experience? Awesome. And that is our news segment. That brings us to our main topic today on Mastering Dungeons. 5e revisited chapter 9 continued combat last show we talked about chapter 9 up to a certain point so in case you're joining us for the new year what we're doing is going through the player's handbook and looking at 5e step by step in terms of game design in terms of what's great about it what might be lacking in it how it might be changing with a new edition coming And we're going to continue to do that through chapter nine today. So chapter nine is all about combat. And we left off with the section on making an attack. And I referred to this earlier in the show when I was talking about figuring out what a set of rules in a game, whether it's an RPG or any other game, figuring out what the rules expect the game to be. So when we get a whole chapter about combat and the rules of this chapter are much more intricate and convoluted and mechanically complex than any other of the rules that we've sort of seen, we know that this game is telling us it's going to be sort of a tactical skirmish combat game. And so, uh, Right away, we get, how do you make an attack? Uh, You make an attack by choosing a target, determining any modifiers, and then resolving the attack through a die roll. If that die roll is a natural 20, it automatically hits. If that die roll is a natural 1, 
it automatically misses. Pretty standard, pretty simple, it seems yeah. like, right? Hey, you're rolling a die, you're choosing your target, you're adding a number. Seems pretty straightforward. And, and now I'll let's add get a little here, more complicated. <laughs> well, and I'll add here that when, when we look at this determined modifiers section, it says the DM determines whether the target has cover and whether you have advantage or disadvantage. In addition, then special abilities, spells, things like that, other effects. Um, but it tries to sort of put way up there, right? The DM determining whether you have these things. And I think that's one, that's almost my first thing that I would say is this is super elegant. This is brief and, and, and simple, but it doesn't do what other games would often do where it'd say, think about it and encourage the player sort of think about what are the cool things you're doing and what effect do those have on the situation, right? This this focuses it in a very narrow way and almost says like, well, the DM's making the call, but doesn't go back and say, why is the DM making a call? How do you get that advantage or disadvantage? What are you you know doing with your actions? Right, it doesn't kind of get into that. Right, and it also it also puts the focus of these decisions on the DM. Mm -hmm. Yet there are so many rules that it encourages these not only decisions but um but adjudications to be made by the player right in third edition we saw it drawn out exactly how you figure out if something has cover whether ranged or mm -hmm. melee right you draw you see the pictures of the arrows going from the corners and if there's only one corner covered then it's this and if there's two corners that don't reach yeah. then it's this and that's that's not here but there is still this uh there's still this idea that I, I won't say that the game is telling it but it sort of sort of makes it so that there can be a, an an argument there can be a discussion about what is cover what's not cover and who makes that decision if anyone mm -hmm. we we have an elegant rule that then gets very, very complicated the more steps that you add. Because the very next thing that is mentioned in the next header is unseen attackers and targets. So what happens if you can't see or be seen if you're the attacker or the attackee? So there's disadvantage on attack rolls against targets you can't see. So you're trying to hit an invisible creature. You have disadvantage on the attack. Uh, when a, a creature that you can't see attacks you, you have uh, you have a wait. When a creature can't see you, you have advantage on the attack rolls. But when you make an attack, you are no longer hidden because, as we talked about earlier, you have to actually take an action to right. hide and be hidden. So you can be invisible, but you are not hidden unless you take that action to actually hide. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a very interesting that that unseen piece. It, it's almost like the <laughs> it's not that it's the worst, but it is amazing how you have this like, oh, it's all very simple. And you get into unseen attackers. And it's something that really took a lot of uh, accomplished, long experienced players to go, wait, what does that mean? So wait, when I'm inside a cloud of darkness and if no one can see each other. We're just making normal attack rolls. 
because I can't see the target, so I have disadvantage, but they can't see me, so I have advantage, so those cancel out, so I'm just attacking. What is the point of darkness? And while the point of the darkness, tactically in 5th edition, ends up being to cancel people having advantage on you, basically, right? To, to get rid of advantages people have, right? To, to get rid of sight lines, things like that. It's not as it would have been in previous ad, 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 uh, situations where you'd sort of impose darkness on someone so they couldn't see. And that was the, and then you'd gain advantage off of that, like you know, some kind of advantage, right? And, and so that's very fascinating. And, and, and yet this is the book trying to be simple, but it, it isn't. <laughs> it's, and it doesn't talk you through all this, right? It just states it's sort of it's it's fairly clinical as to how it's going around it rather than being educational. Mm -hmm. uh, then we get into the difference between ranged and melee attacks. With a ranged attack, you can only attack with weapons or spells if you are within the range of that sort of attack or weapon. Most weapons or some weapons will have two ranges. The second range counts as long range. So if you make an attack at a distance between the the uh, the first and the second range that you're given, those attacks are made at long range and made with disadvantage, and you cannot attack beyond long range of a weapon or spell. Yeah. When you make a ranged attack, you have a disadvantage on the attack. If you are within five feet of a hostile creature who can see you and who isn't incapacitated. That's whether you're attacking the creature that's next to you or you're attacking some someone further away. And and this, right. you I know, we're going to see, see Sean, this gets into the, the topic of cover. And in previous editions where you have lots and lots of bonuses, fifth edition has tried to get rid of all those bonuses, but some, by, by replacing with advantage and disadvantage. But now you end up with situations where the rules have to say like, ooh, I can't have a bunch of things that give advantage because now there's or, or a bunch of things that give disadvantage because then they won't matter. So we'll see that cover does not mm -hmm. use advantage or disadvantage because it's trying to work with these rules. Right. And, and not just stack in a way that isn't meaningful. It's true. Uh, with melee attacks, uh, most creatures and weapons have a reach of five feet. You can't attack beyond that reach unless you have some special ability or weapon that lets you. You can make an unarmed strike if you lack a weapon. This attack does one plus your strength modifier of bludgeoning damage, and you are always proficient with your unarmed strikes. An opportunity attack is mentioned here as a melee attack that uses your reaction, and you can attack a creature moving out of your reach. Um, that attack happens right before the creature leaves your reach. Now, notice the emphasis here when you leave the reach of the creature. Mm -hmm. This means that if you are fighting a creature with a 10-foot reach, they don't get an opportunity attack until you move from 10 feet to 15 feet away. Yeah. Uh, yet, if you attack with a ranged weapon, you can be within 10 feet and not take the the disadvantage because that only says if you're within five feet of a creature it doesn't take into account the reach of the creature mm -hmm. yeah those are interesting <laughs> choices uh and I, I don't necessarily object to them but they are there are some of the intricacies of the game 
And, and the game's trying to be just complicated enough to have a few of these types of situations come up, but not so complicated that there are a bunch of them. And in that sense, I think the fifth edition succeeds pretty well. I don't feel compelled to, I don't feel like I have to make a bunch of changes to this. Right? When I'm thinking of what I, what would I want 6E to be like in, in my mind, like it wouldn't be the end of the world if it was just the way that 5E works. Like it's a pretty good rule set, right? There are some things I would probably look at tweaking and experiment with sort of doing some some alternate design, but not out of a sense of great urgency, I feel like. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like we have in 5e a system that's simple enough to understand with a little either you know careful reading of the rules or some play. Mm-hmm. It can be and I am to the point in my gaming life where I want simplicity and story over mechanics. If I want a complex mechanical game, I will play a complex mechanical game and enjoy it. This, this thing that we're seeing with 5e sort of pushes the boundaries that I want of too Mm -hmm. mechanical because sometimes I feel like there's too much complexity for the sake of trying to make a complex game that's not really complex and isn't really accurate Um, or realistic anyway right right um so this is where the the whole idea of a basic game and an advanced game comes to me Mm -hmm. over and over and over again i i want a game where i don't have to count squares or figure out where i'm standing or do i want to either run up and hit the giant or stand back and shoot the giant. And I don't want to figure out where everyone else is or anything. I want this story to play out. Yeah. And I think D and D can be both, but not both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what five E continues to try to do. And it's succeeding just fine, but it can be better in both directions. Mm-hmm. It, it could be a simpler narrative game that meets certain people's criteria for fun. And it can be a more complex game that does the same thing. Um, I, I wish it would stop trying to do both at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, and cover, which is the next section is, is a good example of that where we have half cover with plus two to armor class and decks. So this sort of two things you need to think about. And then if it, blocks 75% of the creature's body. Now it's plus five to AC and to dex. And 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 um and that that's sort of an interesting and then of course you have total cover where, where you can't be targeted by direct attacks. Um and and that's the kind of thing that it's it's a bit complicated, right? It, it's it's these are things that you won't necessarily many DMs won't remember, many players won't remember how to play off of this. And many other games resolve in far far simpler ways and so does it help you know to have that headspace the cost of of having to occupy this in your brain and maybe sit there and in the middle of a game say well okay actually it's plus five benefit or was it disadvantage you know someone might say like no 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 it's it's a it's a static bonus and 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 you go through this only you know maybe for the ranger to say well actually i ignore cover <laughs> if you've played enough iv you've been at some table like that where you spend all the time you think well this all this time could have been us role-playing and enjoying and, and moving on and so what's the impact of that right 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those times where, you know, you 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 say you run a game four times at a convention, and you know, three of those times players are you know I run up and I hit it with my sword or I stand back and I shoot it. And then you get the one table out of the four where one player is like, "Well, I'm near this wall, so I'm going to shoot," and every round I'm going to drop prone afterward. And then I'm going to stand up as half. I'm going to shoot again, and I'm going to drop prone. And tactically, it makes sense. Uh, even story-wise, I guess you know it could make sense, but it just shows that differentiation between players when you see that wide variety of you know how people use the rules to yeah. you know to maximize the, their game mechanics versus the story that's being told. The other thing I'll say about this, you know, I think fifth edition, you can look at a lot of, of, of editions and say, well, how do the core rules play and how does the game play, you know, three years later? Right. And so I would say, like, mm-hmm. if you look at fourth edition, I can almost say there's fourth edition core rules, core rules. There's fourth edition with the Adventurer's Vault, which retooled magic items vastly and really changed how classes did and broke a lot of the barriers that the game had initially written for itself. And then there is how it played years later after you had all these different powers and features and feats and all of that. And the same could be said of 5th edition sort of post-Tasha's, right? And so what happens is when you have a game that initially just has a couple of pieces like what we're talking about here, that's not a lot of load. But you start adding all the other things that characters can do and that monsters can do and that the game is doing, and that's where these little things become, with all, all the little things become too much, right? They, they, they become less fun and and yet you don't know why because in some ways it's fun to remember new rules right it's fun to think about the new thing you are i'm playing an artificer and i have this turret Ooh, well great what does that turret do and that all feels like fun but then you kind of think well wow why did we only get to through through two combats this session right and and why did it feel a bit like a slog and then you think back and well we did spend a really long time arguing about all these little fiddly bits (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I, not I, even arguing about them, just yeah. making use of them. Yeah, making use of them. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Remembering them and yeah. and, and employing uh, them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So then we go from cover into dealing with healing and damage. So it talks about hit points, and you know we've heard this discussion since AD and D days about what are hit points really, and. 5e tells us that hit points represent physical and mental durability, the will to live, and luck. So that tells us how you can kill something with psychic damage. Right. (laughs) Uh, Only, right? You've you've hurt its mental durability and taken its will to live. So we also get the quote, the loss of hit points has no effect on a creature's capabilities until the creature drops to zero hit points. And this is something I've heard discussed a lot too, is how can you get hit 27 times with the with a club from a giant <laughs> and be fine right up until you're at one hit point and you're still as strong and you're still as capable. And then that next, you know, you trip over a twig, you fall down and you take one point of bludgeoning damage and then you are suddenly unconscious and can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's part of the game. It is. And I mean, I think if you play with systems that have all that extra stuff, you know, different tracks and, and penalties and whatever, 
it starts feeling like the fifth edition exhaustion rules where you're like, I don't know that I'm having more fun because of this, you know, like, right. you know, cause, cause, yep. cause the game it's, is somewhat, it's a conceit of the game that I'm happy with. Yes. I agree with that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Not that, not that a different system would be wrong, but it, it seems like this system needs to, needs to be what it is to keep the game from bogging down with too much, too much weight and keep people participating um, because it if, is possible. I was going to say if, if you were, you know, less effective, each of those 27 times that you got hit now, the game, you, you are participating in the game less, right? To some point you're, you're getting all these disincentives to be active. If you are at penalties, if you are going to be hindered further with just a single blow. And so it, it is the fact that, it, it also works the other way, right? You can be unconscious and some can heal you for a single hit point and you can come back and contribute, right? And that's a key to how fifth edition and, and other editions of D&D have often worked. That just, you just need that one little bit of healing and maybe we can turn the tide, right? That is that is exciting and fun too. After hit points, uh, the player's handbook talks about damage rolls. And to many surprise, it says that it is possible to deal zero damage with penalties, but not negative damage. So I've heard some people say, oh, you always at least do one hit point of damage. That is not the case. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a penalty to uh, if you if you have a penalty to your damage rolls and uh it goes to zero, you do zero damage. There's another line in here that's also a little controversial, so I wanted to mention about damage rolls. If a spell or other effect deals damage to more than one target at the same time. Roll the damage once for all of them. And so this rule, I think, was put in for area of effect spells like fireballs, lightning bolts, etc. But there are some spells that aren't area of effect spells where the same casting does damage to different targets, such as magic missile. And so this can be a little confusing because I believe Jeremy Crawford at one point yeah. said, even if you divide the missiles up, you still just roll the D4 once. And if you roll a one, then it's one plus one damage for each missile. If you roll a four, it's four plus one damage right. for each missile. You also have spells like um, that shoot beams that you could shoot up three targets. Uh, you know, I can't remember the, the spell off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah. that also, while it has different attack rolls, for scorching each target ray. that you try to shoot with your scorching ray. Yep. Um, technically, by the rules, you just roll the damage once. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is one of those things where they're trying to talk about area of effect spells, but they don't mention specifically area of effect spells. So it makes other edge cases a, a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about damage types? We get this long list of damage types. Yeah. I mean, does the game benefit or is it hindered by too many damage types? How many is too many? Uh, right. What do we have now? We have bludgeoning. We have slashing. We have piercing. The three sort of physical weapon damage, what we call in our game fighting damage. <laughs> uh, but then there's acid, fire, cold, electric, uh, psychic, necrotic, uh, force, radiant, force. Uh, trying to think thunder lightning very very frightening thunder, yep thunder <laughs> yep <laughs> poison so, yeah and of course thanks to wild beyond the witchlight 
we also have custard damage. <laughs> Leading me to, to the question, should putting damage be a default damage in, in 6E? Yeah, we custard damage is fine, but if if you have any dessert type damage, custard, uh, you know, is too specific. So pudding, borrowing the term from British English, uh, would cover all of that. Yeah. And I did a poll on this where the choices were yes, of course, or please leave Twitter. Yeah. And please leave Twitter barely <laughs> lost to of course. So I want to thank everyone for uh, for that. That's, for that's fair to stay on Twitter. That's science right there. That's, that's a lot so, of science. Yeah. So, you know, th that's, that's a question. And we, we understand why there's different types of damage. It works story-wise because a lightning bolt would do different types of damage than a fireball would. Um, and a mace would do different types of damage than a spear would. That, that all makes sense. Um, and it also allows you to then give resistances to different types of damage. It, it adds a level of complexity to the game that some find fun, useful. Uh, but then is there too much? Does, yeah. does it become something more than what we need? I don't have an answer. I'm just asking. Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, also you have the, the changes we saw with one D and D where they start talking about, uh, the barbarian, um, well, actually, not even one D and D, where, where we look at Mordenkainen's, right, with its revised monsters that um, made it so now the a lot of uh, outsiders are dealing. Um, what is the they deal? Radiant damage? Force, damage, force, right? I think it's force. Yeah, yeah, force. And so now, and and the reason that's being done is so that they can hurt each other. <laughs> And not resist each other. But then what ends up happening is now the barbarians no longer resistant to all of these different outer planar uh, uh, creatures because they normally can rage and become resistant. And so now they're not resistant. And it's just those are the types of interactions that just become too much. Right. And, and you're, you're trying to get to something simple. But I can understand that, it, you know, if you try to simplify it to say something like elemental damage, well, then I don't I want to say that my fire elemental is different and should it really resist all elemental because maybe it's cool to have it be hit by cold but yeah. you know i think the thing is fifth edition seems to have a lot of language here for a very little benefit and and i don't know i don't have an answer either i, I don't know how to make this work how to i feel like other editions had a greater interaction going on where it felt like more often you were overcoming creatures' resistances and 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 turning and, and exploiting vulnerabilities. Now it feels like maybe this this is a lot of language, but it doesn't come up as un, enough. I don't know. Maybe that's just my games. Yeah. Well, I mean, that gets into the next thing we're going to talk about, which is resistance and vulnerability, right? Because having all of these different types of damage really doesn't mean anything unless you add the complexity of giving things re resistance, immunity, or vulnerability. Resistance, of course, halves the damage, where vulnerability doubles the damage, mm -hmm. and you can apply them, or you sh must apply them after other modifications to damage are made. Um, resistance and vulnerability cancel each other out, and so the question there is then, is there too much of this in the game? And does it become sort of a rote thing where 
because this creature has this vulnerability, we're always going to do that kind of damage to it. Or because it has this immunity or resistance, we're always going to have a way to get around that, whether it's an ability that a wizard has because of their school or yeah. whether it's because whether it's we're always going to have a certain kind of weapon at hand to make sure that we can get around these resistances or exploit these vulnerabilities. And yeah. I, when it turns into this sort of rote, we're always going to answer this challenge with this thing. And if I don't have this thing, then I'm not going to play or my character suboptimal. Uh, the game sort of expects you not to be able to solve all these problems, but players are generally able to solve all of these problems in a way that unbalances the game. Yeah. Yeah, or, or it just becomes, it, it loses its flavor. Like third edition had a lot more of this interaction going on, but it drove situations where the players so memorized what types of creatures had which kinds of resistances to the point where, you know, every melee character had a cold iron sword to fight fey creatures. And it was just this. It, so it's almost like it just became a, a, a meta thing and ceased to have any interest to it. It was just, you know, we'll I'll switch out to, you know, weapon B and, and, and on we go. And and spellcasters would adjust right. when needed, right, accordingly. And it was but it wasn't flavorful. Right. And so that's I think. You have to be mindful of that, where if you make it too rich, well, then everybody weaponizes. <laughs> yeah. So then we get into healing, what healing is. Uh, obviously, healing is regaining hit points via either magical or mundane uh, means. Mundane being taking a short rest and using hit dice or taking a long rest and regaining all of your hit points. Magical being spells or potions or other magical items to re, uh, to re give you hit points back. Uh, is there, at this point in the game, too much healing, mm. not enough healing, or just the right amount of healing in the game? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I... I feel like there is um, there is maybe a little less healing than I would like, but the game is not deadly enough. Also, so so it's almost like yeah. characters are not taking hits that require their hit points generally being adjusted during play. So healing is less critical, and it tends to be that every now and then someone hits zero so then you heal them or someone's getting really low so then you heal them but that's not needed constantly right like third edition was an edition where the big thing came up and hit you and if all of its attacks hit you probably went down and so that was one of those bars go up bars go down right your hit points go down the next round the healer brings you back up then the monster brings them back. You know, it was it was too much of a toggle, too much of back and forth, and and so it, and because of limits in what a character could do, the answer was to constantly use healing wands. Right, the wand of of cure light wounds was just endlessly applied to you to bring you back up every round, and you'd take your action and go back down, and and that's too much, right? But but I think healing is almost a little too underplayed, uh, and it also comes at a sort of bigger cost to where. And has a lighter value to where where it doesn't see much use, and, and the cleric is often doing other things. 
Um, I miss fourth edition where there was a lot of this. I'm healing you and I'm doing this other thing, right? Character classes like the warlord would do a lot of that. You know, you get a little bit of, of healing, but also this other interesting boost that changes the tactics of the situation. And I, I miss that a bit. I don't, what, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think with third edition, what you were talking about was you only needed to have one hit point to, to do things. And it was there was more of resource management going on. So what would happen is the cleric would just get you to one hit point, but the cleric wouldn't want to waste their spell slots on you. So that's just keep you just keep you well enough to fight. Then when the combat's over, I'm not going to cast my spells on you. I'm going to use the the cure stick. I'm going to use the <laughs> wand of cure light wounds. We're going to hit you 72 times with the wand of cure cure light wounds uh, because I'm not wasting my spell slots. Then and we can continue on. Mm-hmm. To me, the the question of healing goes all the way back to what what is D and D as a resource management game, and it should healing should match that goal, right? If it is going to be a resource management game, then healing should be a part of that. I'm using a resource now. I will not have that resource later, which will make things harder. Or I'm going to save this resource now, so I might be able to use it later or at some other point or a different resource. And I don't think the game quite knows what it is as a resource management game. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to adjust healing without knowing that. Um, I I, suspect. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I I lost my thought. So I want, I, I I suspect that the, that I, that I like what the game is doing on this side of things, on the player's handbook side, on these rules, I think this is all fairly good. And while I'd like the the healing classes to be a little more interesting, um, it that part is probably working okay if the monsters hit harder. I think that's probably just my, like, I think this is a good, simple foundation. It avoids all those abusive situations we've seen in past editions. But the players, re- the characters are a little too resilient. To where too many DMs are saying, I don't know how to challenge my characters. And there are other people who can. I don't have a problem with that. But um, and my players will tell you I don't have a problem with that. They'd be stop being so mean. Uh, but but for you know, a lot of GMs do not know how to in 5e threaten characters. And I will say that in say organized play, there are far fewer deaths at my 5e tables than there are at 4e tables that I play at, right? Um, it is the least deadly edition of any. And, and, and that's not necessarily bad. I don't need to collect body counts, but the feel of excitement and of, of worry of challenge and overcoming and the reward of making it through is less in, in this edition. And that's where I, I think the rules, all these rules are fine by and large and no, no major up, up hall required, but the, um, the the it's the damage intake right that that i would like to see go higher so that so that then these rules kicked in a bit more yeah well let's go to the dropping to zero hit points then so of course when you are you're unconscious when you fall to zero hit points there is no such thing as negative hit points anymore mm-hmm. except you need to figure out how much uh overlap there is between the damage you took and zero because if you take hit points equal to your starting maximum hit points by an attack, then you do die outright. 
Um, when you take damage at uh, when damage reduces you to zero hit points, then there is damage remaining. You die if you're. I just said that. Uh, death saving throws, a DC ten saving throw, not a con saving throw, as some people have mistakenly done. It is just a saving throw where you roll the die. You don't add anything to it normally unless you have a special ability. It's a DC ten. Three successes, you become stable. So you're at zero hit points, but you're not dying. If you fail three of these, you die. These counts reset when you regain any hit points or become stable. Now, this is a difference from third edition and from previous editions where it didn't reset while you were in that combat. So if you had two failed death saves, you became conscious again, became stable or regained hit points, and then you went unconscious again, you would remain at two failed saves or however many successful saves you had. Yeah. Um, if you roll a natural one on these saves, uh, it counts as two failures on a natural one or a natural 20 means you regain uh, one hit point and become conscious. And because you make that at the beginning of your turn, you mm -hmm. can actually then do a thing, which is all very exciting, right? That's one of the most exciting things you can have is make a death save, you roll a 20, you get to act. And that's really cool. Yep. And I have had more character deaths from failure of saving throws than any other kinds mm -hmm. than the, you know, than max damage then. And basically it's because the players have turned this into its own mini game. Okay. This person's down over there, but they've got, they've got three saving throws. So we're not going to worry about that. And then, you know, they failed the first one. Okay, we still got two. And then there's that natural one on that saving throw that gives them two and they die. Uh, so I love that. I love that. It takes a little bit of the mystery yeah. and adds it back into, into the game. And the same thing with damage at zero hit points, right? That's one of the things that when I think of like things that have killed characters in my campaigns, it's often been the per they can't get to the person and the person's in, say, a trap that's going to deal damage again. Yep. And when you take damage at zero hit points, you take a death saving throw failure. And if it's from a critical hit, it's two. And, of course, if you're down at zero and someone attacks you, they can get a critical hit. So that's two right there. So it's very easy to get these sort of situations. And, and, and there, there can be a lot of excitement, but also, you know, that sense of, oh, we can't possibly save them in time or those kinds of things. Right. And then that, that can be hard. Yeah, um, so that's a tool that you have as a DM. If your players are sort of metagaming and not worrying about down characters, just have the troll who gets three attacks. Take one attack against the unconscious character just to remind the players <laughs> that this this is a game that you cannot yeah. rely on the rules to save you sometimes. And I think that's a great example of where there isn't guidance right here. So, so there are these rules. Nothing here is telling either the player or the DM how play should should pan out and when this is when it when it should behave a certain way right and and but those are really cool tools you can use as a dm when when you communicate you know the murderous intent of these assassins and that you're downed fellow well they're going to attack them again next round and now things are exciting one of the most exciting things i had in one of a recent campaigns was that clear communication that this person is going to kill your friend next round when they get an action again and they get three attacks around. So they have three opportunities to kill them. 
and the heroics that took place to solve that were 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 awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to go back a second to this instant death rule because this is something that in in third edition had a lot of teeth to it. People worried about it a lot, mm-hmm. and this really only is a, a factor at first level, maybe at second level, some low hit points because the damage that a, a that a monster inflicts, which is uh, and and this is just even the the damage a monster could afflict, uh, it's often below that value is not very close to it's usually below the maximum hit points of a character by a good amount and of course mm-hmm. your character's probably going to have some hit points when they get hit they're not going to get hit at zero they're going to get hit at one or more hit points and they're going to take you know this huge hit and that hit will probably not be an instant death massive damage so it's just almost a rule that just take this out if you're not going to if it's only going to apply at first level that's mm-hmm. really the worst place for it to be Let's just get rid of it. Yeah. Right? Like, that would be an easy thing for me to do in 6E. Just remove this. There's no point to it. And I don't know that it's worth adding back in. It would require sort of retooling. And and I don't know that we need... The fun of the game, I don't think, is the, oh, wow, that hit so hard that I'm just dead. I I think that's generally disappointing. Um, Not, you know... Have monsters hit harder, get rid of this rule. <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would totally agree there. Now there is a rule for knocking a creature out rather than killing it. But this applies only to melee attacks. So if you hit a creature and knock it to zero hit points with a melee attack, you can choose to say, I knocked the creature unconscious mm-hmm. instead of killing it. But again, it's only melee attacks, not ranged or spell attacks. And so I I ask, should it be harder to incapacitate a foe to make the game more interesting at the expense of the narrative? I there have been so many times where the my players are trying to, you know, capture, subdue, but they don't have the tools for that. And so it yeah. makes it, if not impossible, at least very difficult. Um, should they change that in 6E to just say, if you want to capture the creature, just say when it reaches zero hit points, we capture it instead of kill it. I like that a lot. Um, you know, third edition had the whole subdual track of damage versus normal hit points. And that was sort of, you could apply a cushion early enough. I would often play a monk. So I'd deal always subdual. So anytime somebody wanted to take someone, there'd usually be enough damage I'd done that you wouldn't go over into death, death. They'd just go unconscious. And that was great. Um, but but it's another thing to track, and it's not worth the tracking. Tracking. So I, I tend to side with what I think you're saying, which is just get rid of the um, get rid of that uh, of, of of this requirement that it's a certain type of hit. Just say that when I defeat you, what I'm actually doing is the following, right? Like that's great. It could be pulling a blow, you know, holding a spell, pointing at them, whatever. It doesn't have to actually. It's all abstract anyway, right? So let's just lean right. into that. Yep. And then we learn about temporary hit points, which is Teos's favorite. Um, temporary hit points are hit points that are added on top of your regular hit points. And damage dealt to you is removed from temporary hit points first. Temporary hit points don't stack. So if you have some and you gain more, you just take the higher of the two rather than adding them together. Um, I think, yeah, it's safe to say you you aren't the hugest fan of temporary hit points in general. I, I, I would be a fan of them. I think temporary hit points will, will play off of what we're saying, right? If it, you're in a game where bars are going up and down, temporary hit points become that really good cushion against your bar going down too sharply and knocking you out. That, that's why temporary hit points entered 
the the game right as as a as a real thing and became a, a more stable currency in the game and, and and part of its healing is because it was this additional other cushion piece that could that could help you and prevent you from the game going too far spiking one way or the other and now there are so and, and initially in 5e it works okay too uh it's not great because the monsters aren't very deadly but it was okay because there weren't that many sources of it and they were pretty constrained but now that you can have the artificer turret the uh cleric that's constantly you know bombarding everybody in their aura with, and yeah the twilight cleric any of these, like there are just so many of them, and there's so many features, and we see this in one DD as well. Well, the ranger can give themselves temporary hit points, a bark skin, that you know, it's just it's such a big pool of it, and the characters don't even need them. So why are we why are we doing so much of this? One possible way to do this is to look at when they expire, right? So it used to be that temporary hit points would would last not as long um, in some editions, and so you could remove when make them easier to get rid of versus right now it's the finish a long rest and that is it's an all day affair right and so maybe if you made them last just a short amount of time so they're really for a combat that might help with its current form if you really want these constant temporary hit point bombardments but i would just want to not have so many of them i think the rules are generally fine i just don't want them all all over the place all over the time right just unless the game's far deadlier I, I I agree 100%. Uh, the last two parts of this section get into some sort of niche cases of combat, one being mounted combat, the other being underwater combat or underwater combat. And you know, I've seen more complex rules. So I'm sort of fine with the what they do. They say, you know, willing creature at least one size larger than you that has the appropriate anatomy can serve as a mount. Um and as much as you know, as much as people love it, no, the barbarian carrying the halfling is not a uh, an appropriate anatomy for a mount. It's <laughs> a shame. Hey, who who am I to you know dictate what you do in your game? <laughs> um, once during your move, you can mount a creature that is within five feet of you or dismount. This costs half your speed, so sort of like standing from prone. Uh, and if an effect moves your mount against its will while you're on it, you must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or fall off the mount, landing prone in a space within five feet. If you are knocked prone while mounted, you must make that same saving throw to remain mounted. Um, and then there's more about controlling the mount. I'm I'm fine with very simple rules for a mounted combat. I don't need anything more complex than that. Uh, unless we're going to make the game very complex and start doing really strange tactical stuff. Yeah, these are, um, I mean, it's sort of like rules when they, they almost never come up. There are so few cases where characters end up mounted, uh, even when maybe they should from the logic of getting to a place quickly, they tend to not do that. And so these rules just sort of don't have much of a basis unless you do something like say like, all right, everybody's on a flying mount and now I'm going to specifically have this kind of a combat situation. The biggest thing that I think tends to happen is, is when DMs have a monster that is mounted and knowing what does it mean to be controlling it versus not controlling it. And, and so then you have to review that section. I think the rules are actually fine in play. Like I don't have problems with them. It's just 
that it will require some review. Uh, I have a cheat sheet that I keep that I refer to for, for both this and the next section, but it's probably okay. I, I don't know that it needs to be a whole lot simpler. It's tough because you do want those situations where a monster benefits from it. And, and so you want to treat them a certain way versus just saying it's two monsters that are in the same square. You, you want a little bit more than that. Yeah. And that, that brings up that point, I think, very well, is that anything the players can do, the, the, the monsters can do, and vice versa. So you don't want to make anything too powerful uh, in either way, because that, then everyone is going to be riding a mount all the time and gaining that great benefit from it. Yeah. So the last bit is underwater combat. Pretty straightforward. Um, it when you make an attack roll, if you don't have a swimming speed, you have disadvantage on the attack roll, unless the weapon is a dagger, javelin, short sword, spear, or trident, pokey things. Um, ranged weapons automatically miss beyond the weapon's normal range. And even if a target is a, within normal range, the attack roll had disadvantage, unless it is a crossbow net or a weapon that is thrown like a javelin, spear, trident, or dart. And if you are fully immersed in water, you have resistance to fire damage. Congratulations. <laughs> That's why my and characters that, walk around in water tanks. Exactly. Just with <laughs> legs sticking out. Yeah. Um, I wait. That's not fully immersed, so, Sean. That's true. Uh, your legs would have to have also have little tanks attached to them. Uh, why so didn't we do I'm that for acquisitions incorporated? Water, yeah. Water armor. I, I, I like I'm to recall the book. And... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So We're I like a little punchy here. Yeah. Yeah. I think those rules are great. I think my, my whole thing with underwater combat, this is not where the problem exists. I think these things are good examples of where it's fiddly, but probably adds good color and, and interest to it. What to me falls apart with any underwater combat is that is the guidance on generally how to make it feel like you're actually underwater and make that interesting when you're doing any kind of prolonged underwater scenes. That's the problem, not not these rules to me. I concur. And with that, uh, we are about to stop this episode, which is very exciting to deliver to you as the first one of 2023. And we would like to thank you for listening to us ramble on about these things we love so much. And we would also like to thank our patrons who are keeping the lights on for us with their patronage. Thank you. We thank our master of dungeon supporters. We give in our show notes, a special shout out to our master of realms supporters and to our masters of the multiverse patrons. You get a very special shout out right now. John Wilson, Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simonse, Drago Russo, Falcon Neal, Eric Mengi, Adrian Marquez at Post Fiction RPG Audio, Travis Lee, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler, and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Robin Dermy, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Steve Bissonette, and Craig Bailey. Thank you so much for supporting us. And you could be supporting us if you choose. If you do like the show, please consider supporting the Patreon 
at patreon.com slash mastering dnd also if you get a chance leave us a review on apple podcasts or via whatever means you listen to this podcast and if you listen via youtube please subscribe where you can see these beautiful faces every week <laughs> exactly tails where can people <laughs> find you on social media Ooh, find me uh at alpha stream at dice.camp on mastodon uh i'm still on twitter though not very active there and the best place is really just go to alphastream.org. From there, you can reach my YouTubes and all the other endeavors that I'm doing. Uh, I've got a lot of fun things going on that are going to be announced this year, Sean. I'm super excited. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. There's also a podcast feed on Twitter at MasteringDD on Twitter and also at MasteringDD on Mastodon at dice.camp. Uh, you can join our community and ask questions via the Patreon we already talked about. And if you listen via YouTube, you can leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. Well, Teos, we have successfully taken the plunge into 2023, and the waters are fine. What are we going to do now? I mean, we're going to be on our mount underwater, holding a crossbow right next to a foe that's behind cover while we are at one hit point. It's the only thing we can do. But I I am resistant to pudding damage, so I feel good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to have some pudding. <laughs>